Thank you for listening to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Sign up to our Patreon to receive bonus content, live streams and our weekly newsletter with money off books and museum visits as well. Plus early access to all live show tickets. That's patreon.com slash we have ways. I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier. And I'm Katty Kay, U.S. Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades. Welcome to The Rest is Politics U.S., brought to you by Goalhanger. Go on, tell us, were those donations you made, like Obama in 2008, was that idealism? Were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example? So I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, or people <laughs> will be horrified and they'll shut it off right now because I'm going to be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. He was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? (laughs) Well, Obama looks at me, had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. He looks at me and says, I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii. Okay. And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration. In this pivotal year for the United States, democracy and world affairs, Britain's biggest podcast, The Rest is Politics, is launching stateside. Uncovering secrets from inside the Biden and Trump inner circles and how they shape the world's most important economy, but also the global economy too. New episodes are released every Friday morning. Just search The Rest is Politics US wherever you get your podcasts. Chewy, which is, of course, Japanese for achtung, achtung. I am, uh, I don't know the pronunciation. Is that on our the T-shirt? The U has... We use that one, Paul? I think, I think it might be on our T-shirt. The, the U has a flat line across the top of it, like a sort of filled-in umlaut. I have no idea what that does to the letter U. No. Is it, does it make, make it go ah uh, or u? Uh, but, but if is the Japanese chutty? are using characters rather than the alphabet, well, this is a, why have we got that but, in anyway? This is an English transliteration, isn't it? And yeah, who but knows? we don't know what that line is. <laughs> I know, I know. So, so what's the point of putting really, it on? Is that, is that an English affectation? No, I, I think it is. It's an intellectual affectation, isn't it? Of course you know what the flat line means, dear boy. Right, um, well, we're recording this episode of We Have Ways of Making You Talk on December the 7th, a date that shall live in infamy. Um, the day that the Japanese, of course, attacked Pearl Harbor. Um, so it only seemed, that's how you pronounce it. So it only seemed right to give a nod to the nation responsible to making it um, into a world war. Um, James Holland is with me, of course. Uh, morning, James. At Pearl Harbor. Yes. The moment that f- seals the fate of the Axis powers discuss. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm, yeah, I would go along with that. I mean, I, I, th- I think the seal of the, uh, the fate of the Axis powers is already... It was certainly, the, the, the Western Axis powers is already sealed, I would say, by the kind of end of November. I mean, we've chewed yeah. this one over a number of times. Um, 
I, I suppose the point is, you, you know, you just have to think of it. If you go backwards six months to say the middle of June 1941, yeah. you know, Germany, for example, has got has got one major enemy, which is Great Britain, albeit uh, Great Britain plus Dominion plus Empire. Um, yeah. Fast forward, UK Empire's Dominion. That's what I'm calling it now. UKED. UK. That's my. That's my. That's my uh, UKED. Yeah, United like Kingdom that. Empire Dominion. An SWW. UKED. Yeah. 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 Exactly. Yeah. But but you know, fast forward six months to you know, let's say the 12th of December 1941, and suddenly Germany's yeah. got three enemies. It's got the Soviet Union. It's got United States of America and Great Britain, and yeah. UKED. Um, and, yeah. and you add all that together, you just cannot see how they could possibly win after that. I mean, you know, what, what, if, what is what, uncertain I mean, is how long the war's going to last and, you know, how much destruction's going to be wrought, et cetera, et cetera. But well, and, after, and after all, uh, yes, and after all, I mean, th- those those are the really, the, uh, at Pearl Harbor, those are the things that really come <laughs> in. Like, the Americans are in now, one way or another. Yeah. If they had, if the carriers had been, you know, if the carrier fleet had been at Pearl Harbor, yes. then what, we're, we're adding, we're adding, I don't know, three months to the war? Um, you know, given the speed, yeah, exactly. Given the speed of American industry's ability to recover, to turn things around. I mean, maybe, maybe you'd have had less, um, uh, American naval involvement in the Atlantic if the three carriers had been sunk. I mean, you, you, it's slight variables, isn't it? It's, I think Um, so. I can't see how Japan could ever win, really. No, nor nor do I. I mean, but mind you, um, what you can see, though, is if Japan doesn't do this, that they can actually finish their war in China and, you know, the bits they're trying to do, possibly. And in fact, uh, uh, but then what that does to the European war, whether America ends up coming in anyway, which I think it would have done. I mean, what this does is accelerates Germany. I mean, it accelerates Germany's fate um, uh, initially, doesn't it? Rather than... um, Rather than perhaps Japan. Yes, I mean the interesting thing is is that that but but had um, you know Britain not had to kind of send all that stuff over in 19, early nineteen forty two from the Middle East, then you might not have had you yeah. know you might have won in North Africa quicker, which means you could have gone to Sicily yeah. quicker. Blah 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 blah. You know it might yeah. have actually speeded up. You know, I mean it's interesting, isn't it? Because uh, David Edgerton argues that the strategic earthquake for Britain is 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 the fall of Singapore, Singapore. Malaya, and Burma, not not yeah. Um, yeah not Dunkirk really, but you know. Um, it's hard to see how Japan could have survived. You know, had Japan not involved itself in the Philippines, I mean that was quite interesting. I thought for you know the, John, the point that John McManus made. You know, what if it didn't just didn't include? I think it was John McManus, or was it was it yeah, Mike yeah. Nyberg? I can't remember. But but it was saying that you know had they just involved Britain and and um, and the Dutch and the French rather than the United States, so taken French Indochina now Vietnam. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know. Um, Malaya, Singapore, Burma, Hong Kong. Yeah, 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 yeah. Would that have made a difference? I don't know. It's interesting. But, yeah. but yeah, yeah I, don't, I, you know, but having gone for for the all-out attack on Pearl Harbor, you can't really see how Japan was ever going to kind of win the war after that. So, no, yeah. no. Anyway, so but listen, just um, just want to go back. You've um, you've had a good weekend, haven't you? Good, good performance. Yes, I've had a very night. nice weekend. I did. We did this gig on Saturday night with my daughter Willow. Um, we raised over eight thousand pounds for. Um, DKMS. There's a um, yeah. So uh, you can you gratifying... can still you can still donate to that. You can still donate to that. GoFundMe slash Willow and Al. That's still t- and you can still watch it. I think the video's up for a year or something. And that's um, on Facebook, isn't it? That's on Facebook. Um, uh, uh, and yes, you get to it via Facebook or via the or via the GoFundMe page. Um, uh, yes, yeah, so we raised eight grand. And the, and I, I, what was really what was really great is I did BBC Breakfast on Friday morning. And then on Friday afternoon at the at the rehearsals, the guy from DKMS gets his laptop out and shows me the spike in registrations during the interview. 
bang like that. Suddenly, 1,300 people That's amazing, um, sign up immediately. And, and that means that, you know, there's 1,300 more potential stem cell, uh, blood stem cell um, uh, genetic matches for, you know, however many people need them. And it's absolutely, it's brilliant. It's brilliant that people get involved with that. So, yeah. yes, it was a very nice, it was very nice. Um, and then I finished off a diorama by putting a MP40 on a, on a French priest, mm. sticking mm. him in my yeah. street with my firefly. Yeah, yeah, quite yeah, with. How is your... It's already starting to fall to pieces. I haven't oh, got enough glue nice. on my tank. And, on my and actual turret. But, but look at that, look at that. Look at that, it's very good, yeah. James. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. You know, I think it's an entry level. Effort. I'm quite, I'm quite, quite, quite very, very strong with my uh, strong. <laughs> strong with my my attempt at hand painting the number on the side. And um, no, I the, really like that though because that's I think that the the, the decals are often the decals whatever they are often too neat. Yeah, I wonder, and also it, it only seems to have it on one side, which I wasn't aware of. Uh, whether that well, that's interesting, just, isn't it? Yeah, and there's all sorts yeah, of I can't yeah. quite work out what mark it is from the because basically I was basing this panther tank. Knocked oh. out by um, either Neville Fern or George Dring, I'm not quite sure, on yeah. the 26th of June, 1944, between the village of Fontenay and Roray. And uh, <laughs> this is Operation Martlet, which was the kind of sort of yeah. side one to Epsom, the main main event. Anyway, there's all these photographs of this, this one tank, and I thought, oh, it's really good. And you can see where it's been knocked out, which is just at the rear left-hand side, uh, uh, just under sort of... So Edge the, of the hull and the kind of and the, and the tracks. They've obviously knit the tracks, but I couldn't work out how to melt the the, the tracks, unfortunately. Right. When I was when I was replicating this, but the rear of it with the exhaust system is slightly odd, and I can't quite work that one out. Anyway, so it's 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 taking me to kind of whole new levels of my inner geekness. So the Martlet. So Martlet is how big a how big a sideshow is that to Epsom? I mean, well, you describe it, it as a sort of side action. Yeah, because it's, after all. They're big, aren't they? This, this is one of the interesting things. Is all you know, all the focus on Goodwood, and we when we talked about Goodwood the other week, um, uh, I think it was on the live cast. Someone was saying, "Oh, you know, that that when Goodwood happens, what what's going on?" Well, it's when we were talking to Marty, wasn't it? And, yeah. the, and there's the Chambois. Uh, 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 it's not Chambois. Uh, where was it? You were saying that they they all swap over, and the British move into American positions in the build up to cope. Yeah, Como. That's right. And the thing is, is is all of these actions are, are big. Everything's the, the scale yeah. of British uh, 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 um, offensive and this, you know, g- g- grabbing the Germans, holding them, crumbling them, melting them down. Um, uh, uh, they were then they then withdraw. You come up, you do it again, again and again and again and again. Ridge to ridge, valley to valley, rivulet to rivulet, south. And east out of out of the bridgehead. I mean, how big's Martlet then? I mean, is that well, a divisional the, the divisional of, or what? Yeah, yeah, it, it's a well, it's almost core level, really. Um, right, see, you know, it's 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 not it's sort of it's probably not quite core level, but it sort of is. Uh, I mean, the whole point was, it, you know, Epsom was supposed to be a three core attack, and it ends up being a kind of one and a bit core attack because it's yeah. mainly eight core um, that come in. Um, and that's because of the slow build-up, because of the of the great storm of kind of nineteenth to the twenty first yeah. of June. So they're kind of three divisions behind, which of course is a core, effectively. Yeah. Um, yeah. So Martlet, the whole point of Martlet is to oper- is to start a day earlier on the twenty fifth of June. So Epsom starts on the twenty sixth, and to capture yeah. the Rore Ridge, which is a kind of sort of bit of high ground to the west of the main objective on Epsom, so southwest of Caen. Yeah. And the yeah. And the 
the point to get that is to get that high ground so to so that the Germans then can't use it when they want to counterattack against any Epsom effort. That's the whole point. Yeah. They don't yeah. quite get there. They don't actually get it until the twenty seventh. Um but they do inflict a lot of material losses on the Germans. Uh, and it's a quite a major kind of infantry and tank ding dong where the Sherwood Rangers and um and fiftieth Div are coming up against um are coming up against mainly the twelfth SS, who are also having to kind of then subsequently on the twenty sixth and twenty seventh also having to kind of be the main effort um against Epsom. So Yes, it's so not they're like, rushing it's not around. Like Hitler haven't got their hands full. I mean, they absolutely have. Yeah. But, but you know, for the Hitler Jugend to, to then lose thirteen tanks in one day, which is what they do on the twenty sixth of June, which incidentally is pretty much the same amount that were lost at Villa Bocage, which everyone bangs on and on and on about. Yeah, uh, um, um, is obviously pretty bad news because they haven't got the kind of anything like the replacements that the Allies have. Yeah, yeah, yes. I mean, it, it's in, it's interesting though that a thing that's basically core level is a is a side op. To something yes. else. Yeah. I mean, the, the the scale of the scale of the effort in Normandy by this point it's 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 gigantic. But it also reflects it also reflects on how stubborn the Germans are, how in defence, how defensible Normandy is, and how and how the days of big tank breakout. You know, when when what you have in 1940s uh, uh, when the Germans. Blitzkrieg their way through. You've you've a thin crust. You break through that, then you roll the other side up. There's none of that going on. No, because the, the, because everyone's first of all, first of all, the circs are completely, the circumstances are completely different. Everyone's wise to that idea too. Yes, which is why you're def, which is why you're defending <clears throat> in depth the way the Germans famously do. You know where they're they're sort of staged in pockets, aren't they? Uh, I mean, although they're partly doing that because that's all they can do because after all they're overstretched. And 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 a lot of a lot of the things that look like the Germans being clever are, are, are basically born of paucity of manpower. Um, the, the, the dire straits, the, as you say, you know that they hit the Jürgen rushing about from place to place. That you know they're trying to put one fire out, and then a bigger there's a bigger threat because they're always worried about um, the British breaking through and breaking out. Yeah. And so, so 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 that is that's the thing. So I think it's I mean it's interesting, isn't it? That that oh was Goodwood an attempt to break out? That that that. That question, I think, has probably run its course now as a subject to debate. The Germans thought everything was an attempt to break out. The Germans thought, "Oh crap! This is when this is, here comes another." You know, it, and it's the it's the um, you know ma- what, what, what's it the massive shocks thing that um, uh, cracks. Colossal what, what cracks. is it? What it colossal, colossal cracks? cracks. Yeah. And that's what that's what that's what Montgomery's trying to deliver. Whereas, of course, Blitzkrieg in, in 1940, it's not really a colossal crack that gets them across the Meuse. It's it's a, it's an, an effective one, isn't it? Um, yeah. uh, rather than a rather than necessarily a colossal one, that they find the right place to peel it open. But that's not an option available to anyone in Normandy in 1944. No, and I think you know, so. From, that's not from, what they're the, doing from, from, from the defensive point of view. You've got to. You know, you, you can sort of canalise people to a certain extent, you know, by flooding or yeah. or because of, you know, even tanks still have to kind of go down roads for the most part. OK, obviously, yeah. you can go across yeah. a field and kind of through a hedge sometimes, but they can't always. I mean, generally speaking, you're advancing down down axes, um, <clears throat> which are already there. And so well, you're, it's not you're the tanks quite... necessarily, it's the stuff that the tanks need. So if you're, you're you know, the, the, like uh, the Sherman, uh, Sherwood Yeomanry's um, tail is trucks and half tracks and fuel bowsers and... 
and all that sort of stuff that can't drive across fields that does need the road. So, right. so it's not so much the combat element, is it? It's the it's the thing that keeps the combat element going that needs the roads that needs the nodal points. Yeah, I mean, to, well, I think to a certain extent it's both. I mean, you know, you're still going to yeah. You, you're, okay, so you've got you've got SPs, you know, with priests and sextons and stuff, which are kind of sort of tracked vehicles with twenty five pounders on and stuff. But 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 you've also got a lot of trucks towing guns as well. Yeah. Which have to yeah. be manoeuvred into position, and and they need yeah. roads and stuff. So you know, it's it's so from a German point of view, you know, as long as you're kind of sort of mining roads, blowing up roads, kind of you know, you've got guns around corners, you know, and you've got OPs on sight on any advance, you, you're kind of sort of you're in the business of kind of causing quite a major headache. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, yeah. From the German point of view, you've just got to make sure that every kind of possible route through which the Allies can kind of break through is kind of covered, and that that's why they're constantly kind of sort of going hither and thither. I mean, it's quite interesting yeah. that, that the German defence at Epson and Martlis are not aware that they're two different things at all. Um, they just think it's one big attack. Uh, um, right. And quite interestingly, you know, on the 26th and 27th, you know, Panzer Meyer, who's the commander of the 12th SS, by this point, the commander of the 12th SS, uh, has to kind of move um, tanks from operating against the German Raiders one minute, sees that off, and then has to kind of sort of go and plug another gap somewhere else. Yeah. Uh, and the problem yeah. you always have is you just don't know how many tanks you've got. So for the most part, yeah. you know, when you start a day and you're British or American, you know you're going to have, I don't know, you know, certainly at the start of an offensive, you know you're going to have your kind of 50 tanks for your regiment. Yeah, but, but but you just don't know that if you're German because you don't know how many have conked out, you don't know how many have been taken out already. So you know when he says, "Okay, I need to send, I need to send my kind of my tank company over to kind of fill that hole with the advancing British coming down from I don't know wherever," um, he then has to kind of rush up and go, "Well, how many how many tanks have we got here?" Um, and he finds, "Okay, we've got four. It's like, oh, yeah, is that all we've got for the company? I thought we had sort of 16 or something. Nope, we've only got yeah. four. Well, those four are just going to have to do it. So it's constant yeah. kind of make, do and mend the whole time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Whereas the British yeah. and Americans can sort of hammer away at it. You know, you're, you're obviously you're depleting. You can't kind of re re replenish those lost tanks in that particular engagement, which is why kind of battle centre lasts kind of sort of four days or five days or whatever. Yeah. But then you yeah. pull out and in very quick order, you're then kind of put back up to strength again. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, uh, now, last week we talked about um, we talked about training, didn't we? Yeah, and, well, that was really uh, interesting, wasn't it? It was an interesting and response. Outside well. tactique, um, yeah, 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 uh, yeah. and 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 the uh, and, and and actually, and we we touched on some of the historiography as well of this subject. But um, uh, you wanted to talk about that a bit more, didn't you? Because you well, sort of, um, yes, because because you know we've had sort of little sort of ding dongs back and forth on on, on Twitter and what have you, and, and people sort of going, yeah, you know, they did understand Austro tactic and all the rest of it. All I can tell you is that that, that there's no mention of Austro tactic in Rybert, which was that infantry manual that I mm. was talking about um, that I yeah. could see, um, uh, and I've been through it pretty thoroughly since. I'm happy to kind of put my hand up if I'm if I'm wrong about that, but I couldn't see it. It certainly wasn't very obvious. Um, but a manual, a manual after all. Um, it, um, I, I, I have a manual for my Audi. Right, <laughs> I haven't I haven't read it thoroughly. Well, um, quite. Uh, and 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 also as the driver of the car, I didn't write the thing. No. So um, my relationship with the information in it is, um, uh, yeah, which isn't to say this is the same thing, but like I think. Very often you have to think about what, 
a thing like a manual as a primary source is it's written in an it's written for an ideal world, isn't it? A manual. Yes. Even if they're updating and they are obviously continually updating and reviewing and this the feedback and all this stuff going through. A manual is only one manifestation of the culture that produced it. Um, the extent, you know, you, you, you're, you're, the extent to which the messages in it reach the guy at the bottom of the food chain, and, and particularly later in the war. And this applies, this is a, this applies across the board um, uh, to, to all participants. Later in the war, everyone, everyone is worried about running out of manpower. Everyone is in, a, in everyone is in a hurry to get this thing finished. Is yep. I think the thing to the thing always to remember. And you know, you've got to bear in mind. Uh, that the, you know the, the British start to run out of infantry um, in Normandy, and so you've guys you've guys who thought they were going to be in the RAF um, suddenly made into infantrymen, and they won't be as well trained as the guys as the guys who spent two years in England getting ready for Overlord, will they? It, 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 it's impossible, but they will have they will have it will have been the same manual. So if you're if you're using the manual. Pure as your pure argument, it's only going to get it's only going to get you so far, isn't it? Yes. And after all the and after all the thing we re, that we'd also talked about with you know with 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 the, the Germans in particular, and I think that you know and you can apply and again you can apply this across the across the board. What's the culture surrounding that manual? And in Germany, because uh, uh, I think I think one of the really interesting things, I mean, uh, uh, to go back to the historiography, the Ausfrag tactic thing comes through in the 70s and the 80s because uh, NATO are obviously looking for ways to beat the Russians, which is how Goodwood, after all, becomes such a famous battle because the Goodwood the Goodwood battle is a massive tank encounter, so the massive tanks are the, the massive tanks are the, are the Russians and the people defending would be NATO. So you go to the Germans and say, "How did you stop this great big tank buildup of ours?" You know, blah blah blah, and and rather than well, perhaps rather than going, perhaps our plan was impractical in the first place. Um, <laughs> you know, it, the, 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 the emphasis, but, but Ausfrag tactic allows you to answer the, the question of why the, the Germans fight so well without having to address Nazism. And if you're if it's the 70s and the 80s and you're NATO and what you want is the best from your German ally and you're the Americans and the British. You don't want to talk about Nazism. You, you, the last thing you can do is go rooting around in Nazism for, for, for um, motivational um, inspiration, after all. And certainly not when the Soviets will be able to go, look, it, we told you the West was fascist. Look at them. Look at them picking the brains of these. And, and, and so, so you can see lots of reasons why you find that, I mean, find that as an answer. And obviously, mission command and the idea of Asfrag tactics, obviously a really valuable idea. And it's a command idea that people really prize and value. But there's all sorts of other reasons and circumstances around why that, I'd argue, why that idea comes to prominence. And one of them is that you don't want to say... This is how the Nazis did it, no. because 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 you're you're you're, you're you know you're you the guy who's twenty in nineteen forty four was ten in nineteen thirty four. He has grown up in the Nazi state with the Nazi mindset, and whether his mum and dad are going, oh, that's a load of shit, but you know you're going to have to join the army, son, and do your duty, or uh, it, it is is. Is tangential to his own attitude. You know what I mean. We just we we have no way of knowing, but we do know that the Nazis had levers to to motivate people to fight that were completely brutal and 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 used and used 
highly um, uh, enthusiastically by some, by some officers. We know that because, what, it's 30,000 men at least shot for desertion? At least. At least. 48 at least. We, 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 we just don't, we don't know, right? There's no way of, it's unknowable because after all, because after all, it's the, the chaos of battle. And also, uh, you know, that the, the, uh, the, 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 the fact that people fought on right to the end because of their, their oath to the Fuhrer, that's as mobilising as Mission Command ever could be. To the, you know, you're, you, you're going to fight to the last round in that building or on that hilltop. That, that's obviously a thing mobilising people, just as much as the, the idea that their manual has told them that that's what they've, that they've got to portion out command. And I think, it, I think you, you can't pull that, you cannot have the one without the other in an assessment of, of, of how the Germans fought. In the, you know, because the last year of the war, they've lost. They've lost. They've lost by the you know. They've lost by the evening of D-Day. Let's say because the Allies have landed successfully in Western Europe. I mean, they've lost by the. We've we've said this again and again and again. So it can't just be Mission Command. It doesn't. It doesn't have the. I don't think it has the. the weight to carry that situation as an explanation. I just well, don't think it I does. Well, I completely it. agree with you, and and that's. I mean, that's one of my big big arguments has been that that, you know, it it's it's discipline and the fear of of Armageddon and being shot, which are much bigger driving factors than any kind of notions of Astra tactic. I also think that you're right about it. I mean, Astra tactic is a much easier German phrase to to use um, and translate into mission command than. Um, Selbstständigkeit des Unterführers, um, yeah, which yeah. is a bit of a mouthful. But but the but the bottom line is Selbstständigkeit, which is what we were talking about last year, des Unterführers, is is much more of a closer direct translation into mission command than Austro Tactic. Yeah. But Austro Tactic yeah. comes back, you know, it's Clausewitzian and it goes back to kind of the Napoleonic War as well. Um, uh, and you know when Prussians were good and on our side and all this kind of yeah. stuff, and, you know. So it's kind of an acceptable phrase which has no kind of Nazi sheen to it whatsoever. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, so I, I totally agree with you. But I think it's interesting just just to go back to kind of the whole training process and all these manuals. And, I, and again, I think you're you're completely right about this because, you know, okay. So, so these manuals of of which there are legion numbers, and there's also yep. updated reports. So I've got a mass of German reports which are written on kind of fighting in the Bocage. Um, how yeah. to deal with anti-tank guns, how to deal yeah. with, air, you know, overwhelming Allied fighter cover, you know, yard bays and all this yeah. kind of stuff, all of which yeah. are kind of updated on a kind of sort of two-weekly basis. And it's the same with the British training memorandum and the Americans do exactly... Everyone does pretty much the same. But who yeah. is actually reading this stuff? And it's a really good point because it sure as hell isn't going to be the Tommy, you know, in, in his foxhole or the Gianni's foxhole or, frankly, even the German. So where are you going to get this? OK, so when you, you know, your Rybert, for example, a large part of the Rybert, this, this sort of infant bible for the german soldier or just the general german soldier yeah loads of it is about discipline about what's expected the kind of structure of the reich and the kind of you know military yeah. and all the rest of yeah. it you know so here you are son you just joined up here's your riber and kind of first night you're kind of green and keen and you're kind of going kind to of be reading it all the rest of it the moment you go to the front line the last thing you're going to be taking is kind of tons of kind of weighty paperback training manuals in your backpack they're just going to go the yeah. way of the dodo obviously 
So who is yeah. reading well, these are going to be or the toilet the, papers, toilet paper short at the, at the front right. line. So no one is going to be carrying this in their backpack at the front line. So that goes goes out the moment you finish your training. Now, the interesting thing about the German training is as as the war progresses, the training gets cut and cut and cut and cut and cut. And it doesn't matter who you are, whether you're in the Navy and the U-boat crew, whether you're in the Luftwaffe as a fighter pilot, or whether you're a Fallschirmjäger. Interestingly, there yep. was that guy who was in Normandy, who was in the 3rd Fallschirmjäger Division, had basically six weeks training. Boom, boom, yeah. full stop, end off. That was it. And then yeah. he was posted yeah. to Brittany to sort of train on the job whilst also coast guarding. Did no yeah, all arms yeah. training again. Did absolutely, you know, I mean, the first thing he did when he went into action was walk 200 miles to Normandy front, you know, by which time his feet had fallen to pieces and, you know, yeah. no, no position to kind of fight at all. But anyway, that's by the by. But, but the people who are reading these are going to be people who are doing the instructing at these you know, training centres and training camps and all the rest of it, they're going to be looking at that. But, of course, what the Americans realise is that nobody's going to be reading it, hardly hardly anyone. Only the kind of sort of, you know, the classroom SWAT is going to be reading these manuals. So the only way you can do this is put them all in a cinema and make them watch a training film. Because then they've got to watch it. I mean, they can pick their nose and, you know, smoke a fag and not concentrate. But basically, your your chances of that actually kind of going in are much greater. So the British make training films, but the Americans make legions of training films. And there's a very famous one that you can look on YouTube where they're trying to point out that, you know, German, uh, American GI doesn't need to be worried about about German machine guns because American machine guns and submachine guns are much better. And they show them and they say, of course, you know, when you hit this, it all sounds very scary. But look at this. How accurate it is the mg42 it's rubbish you know it's all that kind of stuff <laughs> and it's great and of course you know that makes much more sense so i i would absolutely agree that the kind of sort of notions of you know this sort of arcane kind of sort of arguments sort of almost academic arguments about about what outstrag tactic meant and, and and all the rest of it is just you can just chuck that out through the window that doesn't count it, it's it's staying power in the combat zone that really really counts but yeah. then you've got to strip that back and say, is that down to training or is that down to discipline and kind of fear of not doing what you're told? And, and, and that sort of staying power of just consistently staying in your in your in your foxhole and fighting and all the rest of it and, and firing fans of Panzerfaust at kind of you know zero feet distance. And I think that is a completely different thing to being really well trained. You know, discipline yeah. and training are not necessarily the same things. So there's an overlap, but they're not necessarily the same things. But but yeah. but this whole thing, this whole thing about kind of putting the German fighting power on a kind of pedestal and the rest of it, and 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 exposing the 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 Western allies as being a bit rubbish, all goes back to kind of two seminal writers. And the first one is Slam Marshall. So this is Samuel Lyman Atwood Marshall, who was always known by his by his initial slam. Known as slam, yeah. And, and, and he was uh, he, he was he was born in 1900, the turn of the century. Did fight in France just about um, in 1917, 1918. Um, uh, claimed he was the youngest uh, um, lieutenant in the American army in France. Um, then, between the wars, became a, um, a journalist and reporter. When the war started, he went back into uniform in the Army PR department and then as a kind of air commod historian. And at the end of the, towards the end of the war, from kind of June 1944, he was out in the Pacific and he was talking to um, uh, infantry companies as they were coming out of the line. 
and getting rare reports yep. and stuff. And on yep. the basis of this, he reckoned he talked to between 500 and 600 infantry companies, um, each taking about two to three days. Um, at the end of the war, he kind of then, you know, obviously they all went home. Then he wrote up his thing. And, and his big book was called Men Against Fire, The Problem of Battle Command. And this is where he claimed that yep. kind of sort of only between 15 and 25% of men yep. actually fired their weapons in combat. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And this became massively, massively influential. And everyone started going, whoa, okay, so what do we do about this? You know, and it started being taught at West Point and everyone read it and he was kind of sort of fated as this kind of sort of big thinker. And he, he comes from that long tradition of Basil Littleheart and all the yeah. rest of it, of sort of journo military types uh, who is sort of blended, cutting between the kind of, you know, between being in the military but also being a reporter. Anyway, since then, he's been massively um, uh, cut down to size um, and it's been proved that he can possibly have interviewed uh, um, five, even 500, let alone 600 companies, because if it takes two to three days and he's got between June 1944 and August 1945, um, that maths just simply doesn't work. And it then yeah. turns out that he just made most of it up. And you can now go and look at his papers, <laughs> which are in kind of army archives in El Paso in Texas. And at no point anywhere does it say, did you fire your weapon in combat? So that question, it's not, it's not even sure that he even did it. And it's clear that also in his other accounts, you know, he then wrote about Vietnam and, and Korea and all the rest of it. And he just yeah. made up entire scenes. And it turns out that he, 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 he went over as a sergeant, not as a lieutenant in 1917. And he only just saw action. And he only was just made a, a lieutenant right at the very end of the war after it was already. So, uh, so he's basically first class bullshit version. A bit of a Walt. Yeah, yeah a little bit. But on the back of that, but, but unfortunately that had then held... Suddenly that was starting to think that, you know, sort of German troops were kind of more dogged and more determined yeah. and the Allied troops weren't. This this had kind of sort of this had got out there into that kind of academic thinking and, and didn't want to be budged. Yeah. And it comes again. And it's, as you were pointing out a few weeks ago, it's post Vietnam that it all starts to, you know, really, really raise its head again. And I suppose the most significant book that came out of that immediate post-war, uh, post-Vietnam War period is Martin Van Crayfeld's Fighting Power. Um, which came out in 19, 1982. And he went through the data, and, uh, or data, and, um, uh, and he looked at analysis of combat reports and of casualty figures and all the rest of it. And he basically worked out that in any combat situation, he, he, uh, he went through 78 different combat situations between American and Germans, that overall and, and consistently, um, um, whether in defence or whether attacking, Germans inflicted one and a half times the number of casualties and suffered one and a half times less casualties than Americans did, inflicting on them. Right. right. So they had a 1 to 1.5 superiority. So he says, so this is a direct quote from Fighting Power, which you're going to love. Yeah. The record shows that the Germans consistently outfought the far more numerous Allied armies that eventually defeated them on a man for man basis. The German ground soldiers consistently inflicted casualties at about a 50% higher rate than they incurred from the opposing British and American troops under all circumstances. And, of course, this has then infected yeah, yeah. Carlo Deste, Max, yeah. you know, at all. Yeah. And that is where that all comes from, because that came out in 1982, at the absolute kind of moment Pink. where Carlo yeah, Deste yeah. and particularly Max were, were, were just coming to the fore and, and starting to write bestsellers and all the rest of it. Yeah. And it's a... 
And it's a kind of sort of way of thinking about things which hasn't really changed. But even the Martin Van Crayford, you know, his statistics are very, very problematic because they're kind of sort of cherry-picked to the kind of the best bits that the Germans do rather than the kind of, you know, as we were saying, the hospitality that gets swept yeah. swept aside in kind of 30 minutes. Yeah. And so so the, the, his, his use of the data, as is often the case, is very, very, very problematic and doesn't really Isn't stack that- up. Isn't there also a, a, an issue here with, with what's actually happening, which is that um, uh, the Germans spend, the, you know, uh, four of the five years of the fighting in the European theatre in defence, or certainly fighting the, the, the Western allies, that, that Normandy is one long defensive battle for them. And fighting in defence, if you're the attacking force, always feels costly and terrible, doesn't it? Because you're having to go forward, you're having to take the risk, you're having to take the initiative. Whereas defending, you take, you aren't taking the initiative defending necessarily. The decisions are being made for you. All you have to do is respond and yeah. react. And that, that uh, if you're going forward, watching your mates being killed is a sort of is is it makes makes the going forward feel more difficult. Do you see what I mean? Yes. Whereas if you're defending. You're pluckily defending and you're hanging on. And, and the, 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 the psychological difference is why the Allies feel every time they go forward, they're losing guys and it's terrible. And it must be because the Germans are g- good at defending. Whereas, in fact, going forward, attacking is terrible. It's a terrible, grim, bloody business. Absolutely. That, I mean, after all, after all, the First World War is very much characterised by that. The Germans, all the Germans have to do is sit and wait for the Allies to come. That's yeah. all that uh, you know. Apart from Operation Michael, really, they uh, and the uh, and the opening phase of the First World War, they sit and wait for the British and the French to come, and they and they meet, grind them back, and that and 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 that's it. You, do, you, do you see what I mean? And therefore, of course, if you're always attacking, the dogged defending enemy feels like a better soldier if you're facing him because that's all he's got to do. He hasn't got to take the initiative. And then, and this is awesome, <laughs> but. Added to this is it's in the shadow of 1940 of the invincible Wehrmacht, you know, that that that, that were unbeatable all this time and had performed this miracle in in in, in six weeks in 1940. So you've got lots of things going on at once in terms of the sort of the psychology of the Western Allies that leads to this idea that the Germans the Germans, you know, what's the mystery? Why are the Germans so good at this? Whereas in fact, defending you don't have to. Like I say, you don't have to come up with anything if you're defending. You have to you have to organise your lines, but you've not got to make any not going to make big decisions, have you? Risky decisions in the way that an attacking force has to all the time. Does that yeah, make I sense? Mean, yeah, absolutely. And I mean, you know, just just take for example, um, you know, something like Epsom, where you know that launch of that battle that involves Churchill tanks and infantry moving forward behind a rolling barrage. And going over incredibly exposed open ground of wheat fields and all the rest of it, and and, and you you've got to take that leap of faith. You know, take the Americans. Uh, you know, the the First um, Infantry Division, for example, at Troina in Sicily. You know, high in the mountains. Fault, ro- you know, by the time you got to that height, you've then got sort of this sort of rolling kind of sort of mountain plateau, and they've got to move forward. The soil is incredibly thin. So just imagine you're in a company. You know, 120 men, um, 10% left out of battle. Um, Two um, platoons up front, one in reserve. So two platoons forward. Again, so that's what, 60 men out of entire... That's your company attack going in. Okay, so suddenly that's not very much, is it? And you're going forward and, yes, your artillery's 
pounding the German positions. But, you know, as you all know, it's got to be a direct hit to really kind of cause problem when you're dug in behind your Sangers and all the rest of it. So you're going, you're advancing and you're in your, in your squad of 10 men. Suddenly a mortar shell lands between you. That's one dead, four wounded, just like that. And that your squad is down to kind of, you know, 50%. Just like well, that. And maybe, one, they sto- one and maybe they stop to tend to the unit, the wounded. And yeah, yeah, that's the end yeah, of that. That's absolutely. The end of that. So, so, so you can yeah. just see how these, these, these advances just grind to a halt. The, the, the only thing I'd say against your kind of defence theory is that, of course, the, the Germans have this kind of Pavlovian response to being attacked, which is to their counter Which is to counter-attack. And, of course, and then, that's and how then they you get can, hammered. I mean, that's how they Yeah, because you shell them in the open when they form up for the counter-attack. You know, uh, the, the, and the, yeah, and the problem exactly. also with Van Krafel's data is that it doesn't alter the fact that, that yes... The, um, the, the the Germans had a lot fewer men in Normandy than the than the Allies did, but they also had significantly higher casualties. So that can't that doesn't quite sort of follow. And also, you know, he's not, what he's also not including is the long tail. So if he included company for company in an attack, then the, the, that 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 statistic would be absolutely bunkum. What he's doing apart, is he's yeah. looking at the numbers of divisions, the number of companies. He's looking. He's including the you know Royal Army Service Corps, for example. You know the the long tail that we've talked about, who are not in the combat zone. So actually, the number of men that are actually kind of fighting against a, against each other, the number of infantry against each infantry, that that statistic would be absolutely blown out of the water. So, so a lot of his, his, his statistics don't work. But it's amazing the hold that Slam Marshall and Van Crefeld have had over military thinking. Um, yeah. Ever but since. You could argue, but you could argue, if, you're train, if, you're, if, if what you're doing is trying to train people to motivate them to fight, you find a thing that's pessimistic about that motivation and you, and, you write, and, you, and you plan your training in reaction to that because that's like a belt and braces ap- approach to training infantrymen, isn't it? Yeah. If, if the assumption is half of them aren't going to do anything, then you need to find a way to get that half to do something, yeah. to get involved, don't you? So, so you could sort of understand the appeal if you're a training guy, but, but, but it's led to it, like you say, it's led to this way of looking at the history that, 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 it, uh, that doesn't look at things in the round, in the whole, um, uh, I think. Um, we're going to take a very short break now and then we'll be back because um, uh, what we've done is we've digressed and <laughs> we do have some questions to answer. <laughs> uh, welcome back to We Have Ways of Making You Talk with me, Al Murray and James Holland, of course. Um, so uh, Slam Marshall has been slammed. We've yeah, body yeah, slammed right. Slam Marshall in this touch. first half. Kick him into touch. <laughs> but, you know, to, to, if, I'm, if I'm brutally honest, I mean, it's discussions like these that I kind of enjoy the most. You know, <laughs> good sort of meaty discussion about all this stuff. I, th- I think it's really interesting. Well, and, you, you know, just, I, I was I just, just... Go on. You, well, I think, I think the thing is, I mean, you know, because we have talked a lot about... Um, uh, it's Jonathan Fennell's book um, uh, uh, much earlier in the year about morale and... and and that you know him tracking the, the the morale of the British British uh, forces uh, and Commonwealth forces via basically, and they tracked it via the mailbag. And you can see the motivation going up and down, and and all that sort of thing. And 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 what levers are available to the to the Allied armies to motivate their men the, in the teeth. And then you look at then you, if you do the okay. So what's happening on the other side of the hill? What are they they using to motivate their teeth? Well, lots of lots. Lots of political 
uh, uh, stuff. And, and you could, well, there's political stuff on the Allied side. You know, there's the GI Bill. That's political. Mm-hmm. The promise of a national health service and a welfare state. You know, the beverage report. That's political. Yes, but it's not, it's not political in the die for the fatherland to create racial space for a... Um, <laughs> For uh, for the the greatest people in Europe who are destined to, uh, it's not that, right? It's it, it's 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 you know you you might have a job when this is all over, and if you don't, we'll pay you, we'll 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 prop you up. I mean, it's still quite it's quite different. It is. Quite so different. I think I think you you know you, you you so whatever's in the British manual is in the context of a of of a sort of um, mainly carrot, not very much stick context. Yes. Yeah, I would and agree. the German st- political stuff is in the context of. Not very much carrot. And an awful lot and, of stick. And, and an awful lot of or a, a potential large amount of stick. Because after all, it's the threat as much as the actual um, uh, uh, stringing up that's, that's, that's the thing that's the lever, isn't it? Um, yeah. Anyway, but, but, we but have some questions. Is, is, well, just very quickly, last point on, the, on this is, yeah. is, is, you know, no one can argue that by 1944, Germans are being better trained than, than, than American or British troops. I mean, that's just, just, just absolutely absurd because it isn't the case. You can't possibly be if you're going, you know, if you're comparing kind of sort of two years of training right, or, or certainly nine months of training with six weeks. It's just not the same at all. But, but I mean, the bottom line is also is how how much training do you need to, to to hide in a forest, run up at a tank and fire a Panzerfaust? What you need is discipline and, and a huge amount of threat of Armageddon and, and, well, instant, and motivation. And, yeah, yeah. Right. Uh, that's what you need. That doesn't require training or skill. Similarly, it doesn't require a huge amount of skill to sort of, you know, sit in a mountain pass in the Apennines and fire a machine gun, does it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, and after, but the thing the Germans have learned, um, I suppose, is 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 that their officers are really good at reorganising in in chaotic situations. That that's the that's the thing they're they're good at, isn't it? That they, yes, but only because they haven't got about, very much to organise. Well, well, so maybe, so maybe this that's is, why they're good the at it. Because of maybe that's yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah. If you, you know, if you've if you've got huge yeah. kind of you know, Royal Engineers reconnaissance, uh, um, huge kind of fire program to sort out with the artillery, offshore naval guns and, yeah, and yeah, air forces yeah. plus your infantry and yeah. tanks. That takes quite a lot to organise. But if you've got you know a handful of kind of you know obedient Nazis or, or terrified Nazis. With just a handful of machine guns and a you know an SP gun and a and, a, and an H eight millimeter kind of half a mile back, that, that you can do that in five minutes, can't you? Yeah, yeah. Well, and and you know, and since <clears throat> Goebbels' total war speech, where he basically says he basically says to the population, you know what we've been up to, so we're going to have to we're going to have to fight. Yeah. Ex- you or know, you know really what we've done, and, we, and you're in, all in it, and you're all in it with us. You're going to have to fight um, uh, extra hard, right? So. Um, but, um, this will this will roll on forever, right? Um, uh, what we'll do? So one three quarters of an hour in. <laughs> well, we'll do one observation and one question, but the question kind of t- sort of ties into what we've been talking about. Okay. Um, uh, um, right, let's get to it. Um, uh, Michael Ludedge got in touch after hearing a recent podcast. Love the podcast, guys. Interesting to hear about how you managed to find a piece of Junker, James mm. uh, Junkers. I recently recorded my grandfather's memories of the Second World War when he was eleven and it broke out. Living in Barking, he was well accustomed to planes roaring overhead. When one did crash down, he would, along with most of the other kids, rush over to collect a souvenir. Ammo was the best find, he said. As if you took out the missile part, you could make a great firework with the remaining cordite. <laughs> Brilliant. That's fantastic. Right. Um, Steve via Twitter asks, I love the pod- Hi, I love the podcast, chaps. A real boost during the lockdown. Um, and I'll say it's been a real boost to me, actually, yeah, during well, the lockdown. This I've, I've found it incredible. 
Incredibly valuable. I, I have a question. My question is, after reading James's book, Normandy 44, he mentions that the US end up on the left side of Normandy, so on the right flank, um, at Utah, Omaha, because they arrive in the UK at Liverpool and it made sense they travel down through Britain on the left of the south coast. Really obvious when you think about it, I guess. But was it ever discussed that the British Army had that left side and said, and how would things have turned out for D-Day and the next 11 months if the British Canadians landed at Utah, Omaha? Thank you, Steve. Well, it's not just it's not just Liverpool, is it? Because, no, no, it's, but, it's because, because they're all there in well, yes, and they're, but they're but they're shipping directly to the beaches by the end of the, you know, the, the later American reinforcements don't even come via the UK, do they? They right. ship directly to the Mulberry, don't they? Um, yeah. uh, and so and so, so that end beaches. is at most of, most of them yeah, that's right, the beaches. Yeah, exactly. So that that's advantageous if you're if that's your long term plan for reinforcement anyway, rather than have to go all the way across the lodgement. It saves you it saves you fifty miles, doesn't it? Yeah. Um, it, essentially, uh, which is 50 more potential miles of being bombed at night and because the Luftwaffe are doing very well at night is one of the things about Normandy that tends not to get talked about. And there's still U-boat danger or mine danger and all that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. So, you know, anything that anything that cuts cuts that trip. Was it was it considered that the British ever take that 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 end of the lodgement it wasn't was it no it's it's not really it's and it's also it's it's partly to do with liverpool but it's not really to do with liverpool it's more to do with the fact that in back in 1940 when there was an invasion alert that's where the con- massive concentration was that's where the canadians were when they came over in the autumn of 1939 um and and they were then moved into position in 1940 for Battle of Britain, etc., uh, and they were there. And, and you know, when the Americans came in, they kind of then occupied the kind of, you know, the southeast of of Britain because the south the southeast of Britain was already full up with British troops and Canadians. So why on earth would you switch them over? I mean, logistically, it just makes no sense whatsoever. But is it also not keyed into the idea that the the, the British the British armour component is um, more complex and heavier than the American armour component? And that and and you know it's Montgomery's Matador's cape, isn't it, and all that sort of thing. That the idea is, you 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 draw the German armour onto the more experienced British armour, uh, uh, in the in in the east, and then the Americans because they got more people build up towards the breakout, and, y- and y- so yes, I, I so think... so the landing plan is sympathetic to that grand strategy as well. Yeah, yeah. So I think Montgomery is certainly thinking that, but 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 it is. The, the main reason is is logistical. You know, that is the prime reason why the Americans are in the West and the British are in the East, and the Canadians are in the East. It's, it's purely one that they're already there, they're already in situ. The Americans coming, you know, they're Johnny come late needs, so they're they're shoved in, you know, where the camps aren't already there. I mean, it's, it goes back to the old G, GHQ line, the stop line of 1940. You know, that's where the bulk of the British forces are, is in the Surrey Hills and, you know, in Kent and Sussex. So and, it's just and it, easier. And it stays that way. Right, right, excellent. So that that's funny. An old decision like that actually um, uh, influencing something a lot later. Yeah, excellent. Uh, and um, it's the same um, with Sicily, really. I mean, Sicily's the the the, the reason why the Eighth Army is in the southeast is because that's the kind of main driving point. That's the closest bit to Messina, which is a bit you need to get to to conquer conquer Sicily. Um, and obviously, Eighth Army at that stage in 1943 is considerably more experienced than the the, the Americans, who have yet before Husky the invasion of Sicily to field a field army in its entirety. They haven't done it at all in the war at that point. So obviously it makes sense to have a kind of experienced field army to do that. But also logistically, the British are in Egypt and the Americans are in Algiers as a kind of sort of base of operations. So again, you've got that whole kind of east-west dynamic. You know, why would you swap switch over kind of mid-Mediterranean? It just makes no sense yeah. at all. 
Well, it's I mean, it's literally the the, the, the British are in the are in the east, the Americans are in the west when it comes to to, to things logistically every yeah. single time, because that's just the geography. Yeah, yeah. Um, I will squeeze in one more question, Duncan, because I think this this might be fun. Duncan Smith via Twitter asks, how big a difference would it have made if the Luftwaffe had had a decent heavy bomber? Mm. Well, it, it it's not just having a decent heavy bomber; it's having a it's having um, a strategic air force and a strategic doctrine. That that's a problem. I mean, they were going to, they were planning to. So, so um, General Weber, who was the chief of staff of the Luftwaffe and a highly competent man, um, he just wasn't a very good pilot. So he, he decided he, that as a as a Luftwaffe general and on the general staff, he needed to learn to fly and promptly killed himself in a Heinkel one eleven. But he was planning a strategic bomber force, and. Uh, he worked very, very closely with Erhard Milk, who later became came sort of um, number two, um, uh, and would have been a very effective, I think, kind of pairing um, against, not against Goering, but a sort of counterpoint to Goering. Um, the big point, what, you, what everyone has to understand is, is that at the start of the war, the, the Luftwaffe has evolved organically as a tactical air force. So that is to support ground troops, ground forces. Um, that is what it's there for. And the other part of German doctrine is that the best form of defence is attack, hence the whole kind of counterattacking uh, uh, um, kind of thing. So they didn't really think, you know, whereas, whereas strategic bombing forces, although you are going on the attack, somehow a strategic air force doesn't feel like the right the right thing. And 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 it's just not part of their kind of... Their, their well, they mantra. don't have the, the... The British have a blockade, a naval blockade... Uh, uh, um, uh, mindset and and the, a strategic bombing campaign is basically an extension of the of the blockade, isn't it? It's it's yes. a, co- a continuation of that way of looking at things. That what you do is you make the you make the home front grind to a halt, which makes the the fighting front impossible to prosecute. Exactly. So would the bomber? Which is a bit dry, isn't it? It's a bit it's dry, not, but it, but but, it, but it's compared to compared to a German attack, attack, attack. Um, uh, uh, idea. So I mean, what is amazing is that when they defeat France in 1940, they capture this this incredible Bloch um, bomber, heavy bomber, which yeah. can fly at over 300 miles an hour, and it's the only heavy bomber in the war, as far as I'm aware, that could fly at that speed. And they yeah. captured it and used it throughout the war as basically a kind of sort of transport plane. That they made yeah. no attempt to get blocked and build anymore. They had no attempt to kind of build it themselves and take it over to Heinkel yeah. and just say, kind of, you know, can yeah. you just build this? I mean, it's, yeah. it's just extraordinary. I've, I've never found but, any reason. I think it was called the Block One Six Two or something like that. But anyway, yeah. I mean, if you, if you look at it, you can see photographs of this plane. It's an absolute beast. Um, yeah. So it's not that they don't have the opportunities; they just don't take them. But the difference it would also have made. Here's it, it, here's a difference it would have made it's on a on a. Um, on a uh, HE-111, you've a pair of BMW engines, haven't you? Yeah. Right? The Block 162. Well, well, the Block 162. I've just, I've just looked, looked it up, and there it is. And it, it, it's, um, it's it didn't fly a single combat mission. Uh, they, um, anyway, let's say there's, there's two BMW uh, engines on a Heinkel 111, mm. right? And you need a four-engine four strategic bomber. Well, that's immediately half the number of BMW engines you can use for HE-111s. So you can't, what, what, what you can, you, what you always got to remember when doing these sort of, um, when you pull one lever in the counterfactual, what's the other effect it has? And it the means if you're building, you know, exactly, for every, for every four-engined bomber you're building, you're depriving yourself of the two-engined tactical bomber 
that the army are on the phone going, we need tactical bombers as part of our punch through, uh, you know, the way we've jo- joined this thinking up. So so what? So let's say the Luftwaffe have have heavy bombers for the Battle of Britain, have a, have a heavy, a four-engine heavy for the Battle of Britain. It just means they're all going to get shot down. That, 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 that they're going to they're going to do as badly as the 111s because they're going to be deployed in as inco as a, a, a incoherent manner as the right. 111s are yes that and they're going to offer themselves up to um uh, hurricanes because they'll be slow um uh and they'll be shot down and and there'll be less of them and more of them will be shot down that's that would be my <laughs> you yeah. know if well, the, the pessimists if, counterfactual yeah, well, and if you consider that all those medium bombers, all those those Dorniers and Heinkels and all the rest of it, only managed to knock out one Battle of Britain, air, one RAF airfield in the Battle of Britain for yeah. more than forty eight hours, yeah. are a four is a four engine bomber going to sort of significantly improve that statistic? The problem is no, no. I mean, I mean they it might, might mean have knocked it... out six airfields for more than forty eight hours, yeah. but but not very much because that greater ordinance yep. isn't going to prevent, isn't going to make them any less likely to be shot down. In fact, but it's, it's going to make tw- them more likely be... because they're bigger targets. That's twice the draw on engines, twice the draw on airframe materials, or one and a half times the draw on airframe materials. You, 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 you see what I'm, you see where I'm going with totally, this? Is that, yeah. is that is that every one of these, the, the, you know, after all, that after all, that that when you look at the British side of air production, that the, the prioritising of engines and the prioritising of airframes and the decisions about about airframes and which engine you use and how you. How you do we put Merlins on this? Well, no, we need them for something else. That's going on, on us, uh, and the Allies have got. I mean, I think Britain in particular, kind of has its aircraft policy straight by 1941, has laid down the tram lines that it's going to run manufacturing policy on, um, uh, and it has room for a heavy. But with a, st- but obviously, you know, the Merlin goes on the Lancaster because st- it's a standardised engine. Because that's that's the thing you need to get right as much as anything else. And and so a German heavy is going to be, there's going to be less of them and less than there would be of Heinkels and is going to be shot down just as just as much. So I don't if not more. I don't think if not more. I don't I don't see it, I don't see it necessarily making a massive difference. Is the it, 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 the thing because you're you're locked into these tram lines of of what the you know what the what can the Germans actually do? What can they got to spend? What can they build? How can they build it? Yep. Totally That's agree. A bit of an Adam, bit of an Adam Two's answer, but there we go. Well, you asked for it, Duncan Smith. You got it. <laughs> well, thanks for listening, everyone. Um, we will, we will, we will do the question about. Um, what did British generals think of American generals and vice versa that, that's lurking in our question pile at some point? We will get yeah, around to that. Because I, I think, again, a lot of that's a product of the historiography of um, post-war anyway. Thanks for listening. We're back on Thursday with a pod in the morning and a live stream uh, in the evening, of course. Um, the Colonel thoroughly enjoyed his stint on stage. He was magnificent. And, um, <laughs> he did a good job, didn't he? And they're getting the internet fixed, my mum and dad. Like he didn't just talk late. in sentences and paragraphs; he talked in chapters. It was amazing. <laughs> you can see why you can see why I ended up interested in the subject. I had no option. <laughs> I thought he was absolutely brilliant. Yeah, he was, he was great, and um, I think and, loved and him, he, didn't they? Yeah, he really enjoyed himself as well. He he he, he particularly likes the idea that everyone's calling each other a spare prick. There we go. <laughs> <laughs> Demands from so, mugs. Um, the mugs of that are, are rising. Yeah. 
<laughs> so keep tweeting your modelling pictures as well with the hashtag KitOff. We're loving yes, seeing yes, yes, yes. amazing talent for a bit, out there. A, a, a yeah, brace yeah. for a bit more modelling this week. <laughs> <laughs> well, sayonara, everyone. We'll see you soon. Cheerio. Cheerio.